Make some noise if you can just go home after that. Anybody? Anybody with me? I'm just like, that's good. We're done. We can go home. If, you are, uh, if you're new, I want to welcome you. My name is Joey, and I'm so pumped that you decided to come and do church with us today. If you're new to the Elevate City story, I want to catch you up on the story real quick. Turn to your neighbor and say, built different. And I'm here to tell you that this place is built different, okay? Um, we launched uh, Elevate City on October 4th, 2020, in the middle of a pandemic. Some call it faith. Others call it crazy, okay? I think it's a little bit of both. And um, man, it's been a wild ride. I'm here to tell you, I will always love that we launched Elevate City in 2020. Because if by some chance this thing actually works out, <laughs> then um, God's going to be the one who gets every ounce of glory. Amen? Because I'm up here to tell you today that we have no idea what we are doing, okay? Like, it might look pretty good right now. It might look like we got this figured out. But I want you to know that this whole thing is held together by shoestring, bubblegum, and gaff tape. And uh, if you don't know what gaff tape is, I want for you to know that is a call from God for you to serve on the tech team, okay? Like, that is a word from the Lord. He has chosen you and called you and equipped you to serve on the tech team so that you can know the glory of gaff tape, okay? Man, God's been faithful. It's just been a couple of months, but... What started in a movie theater, we quickly grew to two services and then outgrew that space. And now we're here in the Marriott with a vision and a dream to tear down that wall because we've grown and we need more space for searching people. That's a dividing wall. And we believe that sooner or later that that thing's going to come down because we're going to need more seats for searching people who want to meet Jesus. Amen. That's the kind of church that we are. That's the kind of church that we want to be. If you... Uh, if you're new, we are a Jesus church. I'm a Jesus guy. I, I believe that life is fundamentally first and foremost about him, that behind everything that you're chasing for and looking after, that what you're ultimately looking for is Jesus. And that life lived his way is the best way. And so every time that we gather together, we're trying to figure out how we orient our lives around the things that Jesus oriented his life around. We want our heartbeat to be his heartbeat and I'm here to tell you today that his heartbeat was for people. And we want to be a church who is passionately in love with people. We are in a collection of talks titled Love is Our Language. Let me hear you say love is our language. Yeah, this is one of our ten cultural statements as a church. We've got these on our website. We've got them on a banner. And we're trying to make this more than just something that is written on a sheet of paper and something that's in our souls. Something that we really believe, something that we really live, that love is our language. You know, there's a lot of different languages that churches speak. Some churches speak King James, we doth not. <laughs> Some churches speak in tongues, that's fine, just get an interpreter. Our language is love, okay? Our language is love. You're not going to hear a lot of these and thous, but you're going to see a lot of people who will give their life to love people around this place. People who will lay down their life so that other people can feel like loved is their middle name. And today we're closing out that collection of talks, part four of this installment. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, this is one of, if not the most scandalous passages of Scripture in the Bible. Luke 15 is the kind of chapter that gets Jesus killed for. I mean, think about this for a second. You don't kill somebody who can turn water into wine. You make them your best friend and take them to parties. Amen? 
Like, you don't kill somebody who can do that. Like, if I've got a friend who can turn a Lunchable and feed 5,000 people, he's in my top eight on MySpace, all right? Like, I want that person in my corner, MySpace. That's a throwback reference. You can always count on me for out-of-date cultural references, okay? But you want to be around that kind of person. Why do they kill him? What gets Jesus killed? You see, when people start to say things that challenge your understanding of God, you don't like it. And Jesus says some things in this chapter that are so scandalous, so ridiculous, so full of uncommon grace that they kill him for it. Look at what happens. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, verse 1 and 2 are so key to this chapter. Verses 1 and 2 provoke Jesus and lead him to verse 3. You see, I want to preach a message for you today titled Search Party. If you're taking notes, which you get more crowns in heaven if you do, you can write that down. Search party. Search party. Jesus is going on a search party, but this search party starts with another party. And you see, Jesus was attractive. I don't know what image of Jesus you have in your mind, what you've learned from Sunday school or what you've seen on the History Channel or Veggie Tales, but Jesus was attractive. He had this magnetic force to his life where people were just drawn to him. They were hanging on their edge of their seat wondering, what might Jesus say next? What might he do next? Where might he go? Who might he challenge? What miracle might he perform? And so there was this gravitational pull to his life where people who others avoided were unbelievably attracted to Jesus. Do you know this version of Jesus? The version of Jesus that you can't get enough of. The one that you just want to get closer and closer to. The one who you're just hanging on every word that he says, wondering what he might say next. If you don't know this version of Jesus, then it's possible that either A, you stopped spending time with him, or B, you never knew him in the first place. You were sold maybe a version of Jesus that is far removed from the biblical Jesus that is transcendent that does not go out of style, that does not become irrelevant, that cannot be confined to one point in human history, but that is always has more to offer, always has more to uncover, always has more that he wants you to see. Now at this party, there's a peculiar group of people. The Bible says that tax collectors and sinners were drawn to him. They were drawn to him. They were pulled to him. Now, you know how sometimes pastors, they've got to, like, teach you the context or the backdrop or the cultural um, setting of the Bible. You know how pastors will do that sometimes? Like, we like to flex and be like, hey, in the Greek, this is what this actually means, you know? Um, it's a kind of an odd flex because there's a website called Blue Letter Bible where you can fake like you know Greek too, okay? So that's a pro tip. Don't go to seminary. Just save that to your favorites tab, all right? It'll save you 30 grand. I'll take 10% tip in the lobby for it, okay? Spend a lot of money for something that you can just find online now. But, you know, you, you have to do that context sometimes. You have to do that research to let people know really what's behind the passage and under the passage and help the passage come to life. You don't have to do that with tax collectors. Pretty much people felt about them then the way that we feel about them now. We hate them. Like if you are here today and you work for the IRS, I want for you to know with all the sincerity in my heart that we are praying for you. 
We are praying what David prayed in the Psalms, that God would crush the teeth of the wicked in Jesus' name. No, I'm just kidding. We love you tax collectors, okay? But, but this was the feeling towards tax collectors. Like, you're taking my money. Historically, what would have happened is these men or women would have been employed by the Roman government, and they would have been sent out to take taxes. But what would happen is they would take a percentage off of the top. So they were stealing. They were manipulative. They were conniving. They were, they were scheming men. They were running a scam, and so people didn't like them. But these people were the people who were being drawn to Jesus, people who had enemies, people who lacked friends, people who did things that everybody else hated were drawn to Jesus. But it wasn't just tax collectors. It was also sinners. Now, sinners is different than our understanding of sinners today. We hear sinners today, and we just think those who do hood rat stuff with their friends— but sinners are actually a class of people in ancient Israel. There were those who would have deformities, those who would have illnesses, those who maybe had leprosy, those who were prostitutes, those who were murderers. These were notorious sinners. It was a class of people. It was obvious. Anybody in the room today, you say you were a notorious sinner before you met Jesus? Like it was apparent. It was evident. You weren't hiding it. It was clear that you were a notorious sinner. Those people usually don't mind admitting it because notorious sinners know what Christian people don't. And it's that it doesn't matter what vice you have. It doesn't matter what substance you use. It doesn't matter what pleasure you find. Every bottle ends up empty. And where those bottles end up empty, Jesus is the living water that quenches the thirst that notorious sinners know they have. This is, this is why these notorious sinners were so drawn to Jesus. There was something about him that was just so different from everybody else. And so there they are, these sinners and these tax collectors. And it looks like somebody just kicked this little sinner pile all over Jesus. And there they are. And Jesus is eating with them. Now, eating is extremely cultural. You see, to eat with somebody in the first century is to totally embrace them and accept them. Like, we'll go out to lunch with anybody, right? If it's just like ends up at work, okay, I guess I'll go with you. Let's go get some Moe's, right? But for them in the first century, it was inclusion at its highest level. You see, these people were deemed ceremonially unclean, unfit to be touched or even associated with. And so for Jesus to eat with them, the way that you eat Mediterranean food, it's, it's a mess, okay? It is not COVID approved. There is dipping and double dipping and sloshing up bread and like you're all up in somebody else's body fluids. It's, a, it's gross, all right? And so for these people to eat like this, it's like, I'm good. I'm as close as close can get with you. And so Jesus is welcoming these sinners. He's welcoming these tax collectors. It was a total inclusion at the highest level. And what Jesus is doing is he is proving in this moment that you cannot do the work of the kingdom devoid of relationship. You cannot. You see, a lot of Christians want the message of Jesus to go out. They just don't want to have to get their hands dirty when it does. But Jesus eats with these people, proving that it is my job and your job to pull up these people's seat. To make sure that they know that they've got a seat at the table, that they belong in this party, that they can eat across from us. No matter where they've been or what they've done or what they've gone through, that there's a place for them in this place. That they are welcome in our house. And that the kingdom of God, that kind of work cannot be done devoid of relationship. 
Jesus is showing us that it is our job to pull up the chair. Now, let me tell you about scribes and Pharisees. Let me hear you say scribes and Pharisees. Let me just be honest. Scribes and Pharisees, they're better than you, okay? Like you are JV level Christian and they are varsity level Christian. Like it just doesn't compare. You wouldn't make the team. You wouldn't make the list. You do not belong, okay? I don't care how Christian you think you are. I don't care if the only channel on your radio is 104.7, The Fish. I don't care if all you listen to is what's safe for the whole family. I don't care if you're rocking a WWJD and a HWLF and a IDK bracelet. Like, it doesn't matter, okay? I don't care if you've gotten rid of all of your name brand clothes and the only clothes you wear now say a bread, crumb, and fish. All right? Abercrombie and Fish, did y'all not get that joke? <laughs> I don't care. You don't hold a candle to the Pharisees and the scribes. So like we know about the Sabbath, right? Let me hear you say Sabbath. So the Sabbath is this day of rest that God has prescribed for us where we would rest on the seventh day. And on the Sabbath, many of us, we cut our grass and we run errands. These men would not walk. They wouldn't walk. They would count the amount of steps, and if they took too many steps, then that would be considered work. And so they would literally just rest and just be with God and meditate on the things of God. There's just this varsity-level Christian. And so these moral compasses, these legalists, these religious elitists see that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and, uh, and, and sinners, and they start to grumble. It's almost like they're like these whiny little babies. They just start to complain and pout that Jesus isn't spending time with them and that Jesus is spending all of his time with these broken people, with these hurt people. They start to have conversations in the lobby after church about Jesus. And they start to, they start to tweet at Jesus and blog about Jesus and send emails to the elders of the church about Jesus. They're just complaining and grumbling. Why would you associate with these people, and I love what Jesus does. This grumbling, it provokes him. It provokes him to verse three. Look at what verse three says. Verse three says, so we told them this parable. How savage is that? Jesus is upset, he's frustrated. He goes, let me tell you a story. And he begins to tell this story. And this story is like, it's kind of a crazy story. It's like Quentin Tarantino level story. Like a lot of people think that Luke 15 is three stories, but it's actually one story that God is um, telling over and over and over again in very sharp, jagging type ways to illustrate one point. And that point is how God and, and his people are supposed to look for things that are lost. The point of this story, it's about one uh, sheep and one coin and one brother, one lost sheep and one lost coin and one lost brother. And God's point is that you're supposed to search for these people. You're supposed to go looking for these people. It's these stories. And so I love that Jesus tells this, this story. This is what he says. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I, I, I love the question that Jesus asks. He goes, 
Imagine you were a shepherd. Suppose you were a shepherd. This would have caused these men to pump the brakes. Whoa, suppose that I was a shepherd? I'm not a shepherd. I can't imagine that I'm a shepherd. I have shepherds. I have shepherds who attend sheep for me. I wouldn't get my hands dirty touching a shepherd, interacting with a shepherd or sheep for that matter, which speaks exactly to the point that Jesus is trying to communicate that for these men, sheep are commodities. Sheep are transactions. But for Jesus, sheep are people. And these men were always looking at what they could get from a people. And in the kingdom of God, we're always looking at what we can do for people. Jesus goes, people aren't a transaction. People aren't a commodity. I am the good shepherd. And if you want to live in my kingdom, then you are a shepherd who gives your life to look after sheep. This was a mind-blowing reality for these men. They didn't even have a place to file this in. That I am supposed to look after sheep. I am supposed to go looking for things that are lost. Have you ever lost something before? Have you ever lost something before? You can go from normal to panic real quick when you lose something, can't you? Like every guy knows this move before he leaves to go somewhere. Phone, keys, wallet. It's called the Holy Trinity, okay? Can't leave home without it. Phone, keys, wallet. Every guy knows that I can't go anywhere without it. I don't know about you, but when I lose something very quickly, I conclude that somebody stole that thing. Anybody else with me? Like, I'm just very convinced that I didn't lose it. Somebody stole it. I'm telling Kayla this all the time. Somebody stole it. Somebody stole my keys. Somebody stole my phone. She's like, baby, it's me, you, and Raleigh. And I'm like, there's hat in two. There's hat in two. I know he's just four months, but it's the quiet ones you got to worry about. Very quickly, I just conclude that somebody stole it. Losing things are really, really frustrating. I heard a guy the other day, he dropped his phone and it almost fell into like one of those grates on the sidewalk. And he goes, oh, no, everything. Because his phone is like everything to him, right? He's like, what am I going to do without it? Like if I lose my phone, then I lose everything. It's so frustrating when you lose things. Have you noticed that the longer that you look for things, the stranger places you begin to look? Anybody ever looked for their keys in the freezer? Hello. Like what in the world would your keys be doing in the freezer? But you just start to look in really outlandish and ridiculous places when you begin to lose things, don't you? Um, I, I, I've stopped looking for socks and uh, Tupperware lids. I'm just convinced that they marry each other in the middle of the night and run off to some secret place unbeknownst to mankind. Eventually, you just get really frustrated looking for things. What is going to happen when Jesus tells you to go looking for sheep? How easily will you give up? How easily will you give in? It's, it's, it's so interesting. Sometimes with certain things, we will turn things upside down to try to find it. And then other times we'll just go, oh, you know, it'll probably turn up eventually. There is no turn up eventually in the family of Christianity. There is only urgency. There is no trying to maintain and hold on and play it safe with what we've got. There's this attitude of going after the one. Jesus says, what shepherd who has a 100 sheep 
and loses one does not, of course, he's like, it's obvious who wouldn't do this. This is the move. Leave the 99 and go after the one. Jesus is obsessed with the one. This makes no sense logically, makes no sense economically. Why would you leave 99? You've got a lot. I don't even know that you'll notice without the one. This is reckless behavior. This is illogical behavior. To leave 99, to subject them to the dangers of the wild with no shepherd and go after the one. What kind of love is this that God wants us to be people and that he is the kind of God who is obsessed with the one who seeks for the one who risks the 99 for the sake of the one. Did you guys um, see the picture of Barack this week? Not Obama, Barack the sheep. Check him out. This is Barack the sheep. <laughs> so this is going kind of viral on social media and TikTok. Barack the sheep went missing. Nobody really knows how long ago in Australia. And this week, Barack was found by a group of animal rescuers. They found Barack. And Barack had been missing for so long that this wool just started to, to build up on him. It just started to grow. And, and what a lot of people don't know about sheeps, I do because I'm a sheep expert, is that if you, don't, if you don't shear a sheep's wool, then diseases and feces and infections start to grow in that sheep's fur. And you won't even notice. And naturally over time what's happened is sheep have become completely dependent upon humans to shear them. They will not just lose their wool. It will just build up and things will hide in it and it will weigh them down. And so they found this um, uh, sheep named Barak and they sheared him. And when they sheared him, there were 78 pounds of wool on this sheep. This is what Barak looks like after he's been sheared. He's like a different person. Completely different person. Do you know that there are people out there who have been carrying around so much? They're carrying around diseases. They're carrying around sin. They're carrying around shame and condemnation and loneliness and addiction and fear. They're afraid of God and they're afraid of life and they're afraid of the economy and what's going to happen. They're carrying all this stuff around and it's killing them from the inside out. They think that they're just carrying the burden of living in this broken world. They think they're just carrying this burden of 2020. They think they're just carrying the burden of a pandemic. But I think that they're carrying a life without God. They're carrying what it means to be lost and separated from the shepherd who loves them and wants to make them new. Who wants to make them clean. Who wants to take away and cut off all of those things that are weighing them down. Did you know that sheep look for greener pastures at all costs? At all costs, sheep look for greener pastures. I didn't know this until this week, but sheep will literally, they will climb up onto mountains that they cannot get down from looking for greener pastures. They will climb down into valleys that they cannot get out of looking for greener pastures, which I think explains so much about human behavior. So many of the places that we find ourselves and the decisions that we make and the places that we get stuck in are pursuits of greener pastures, aren't they? 
What if you started to realize that the reason that people are running so hard and changing careers so often and looking to build the bigger house and take the next step and go on to the next relationship and go to the next party or try the next substance or go to the next vacation or get the next highs because they're just looking for greener pastures. Do you see that that's what's happening? Do you know how quickly we look for greener pastures? We start to maybe even look at church and go, man, I wonder if the greener pasture of a vacation will just satisfy a little bit more. I wonder if the greener pasture of my kid excelling at athletics will satisfy a little bit more. I wonder if the greener pasture of, you know, just some time to myself to decompress will satisfy a little bit more. So much of where we find ourselves and the places we end up getting lost in are our pursuits of pastures. I want to ask you today. What pastures have you found yourself lost in and not even known it? Where have you convinced yourself that what I'm doing is I'm looking for greener pastures, but what has actually happened is you've wound up lost and you've gotten yourself to a place that you cannot get yourself out of because you were looking for something that you can only find in him. There is no greener pasture that is greener, that is better, that is brighter, that is more beautiful than the pasture where you're with your shepherd. Jesus tells us to go looking for these sheep at all costs, leaving behind the 99, journeying out into the unknown. And I love the rhythm that he starts to, he, he, he starts to tell us. He goes, you seek for the sheep, you search for the sheep, and when you find the sheep, you party. You party. It says that the shepherd takes the sheep and puts it on its shoulders. Have you ever wondered why shepherds do that? The reason is, is because when sheep are alone by themselves, they are so fearful. Sheep will not lay down unless they feel safe. They won't do it. And so by the time that a shepherd has found a lost sheep, it's spent so much time standing, so much time running, so much time shaking that it cannot even stand on its own. And there are some broken people out there that when we find them, what you got to know is we're going to need to carry them. We're going to need to carry them back home to the heart of Jesus. We're going to need to drag them to church. We're going to need to break their legs, throw them in the back of the trunk, do whatever we got to do to get them here. There are these people who are carrying things that are so heavy that when you start to talk to them, they're probably going to come unraveled at the seams and it's going to be messy and it's going to be awkward and they're going to say things that are really ridiculous. They're going to insert their foot in their mouth because they're so tired. And when we find them, and we search for them, and when we bring them back home, you party. It says that all of heaven rejoices. I look forward to the day that Elevate City is 50% searching, 50% party. That's the kind of church that I'm trying to be a part of. Where half of what we do is we just look for the most broken, left out, passed over, uninterested, checked out, atheist kind of people. The people who never thought that God would love them. The people who never thought that there was a place for them. The people who thought they would spend the rest of their lives in their addiction. Who thought that they would spend the rest of their lives just, you know, going through life as normal. I want to bring them in here. I want to find them. I want to love them. I want to look for them. I want us to be the kind of search and rescue people who go and bring them back home. And when they get here, I want us to be the kind of people who party. I want half our services to be baptism services. 
half of our services to just be storytelling, telling stories of transformation, worshiping God and thanking him for what he's doing in the life of our church. Is anybody excited about that kind of church where we party because the lost are found and sheep have come home? Search party, search party. But then Jesus tells another story about a coin. Tells another story about a coin. Luke 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp or sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus talks about a woman with a coin collection. It's very funny to think about this woman. And I love the way that he goes from shepherds, outcasts in society, to women also outcasts in this society. Saying that it does not matter what place you sit in. It does not matter how much maturity you have or what your socioeconomic status is or how advanced you are in Christianity. None of us outgrow searching for people. It's for every person. It's not just a varsity level job. It's not just a pastor's job. It's every person's job, shepherds and women and fathers, to go searching for people. And so Jesus begins to talk to this woman about her, or begins to talk about this woman's coin collection. And the coin is what's called a drachma. And it was worn in this 10-piece garland, ornate piece of jewelry um, by a married woman. And one coin equaled one day's wages. So they would wear 10 days wages on their chest, okay? And this lady has lost one. She's lost one. Now, you do any budgeting and you lose one of 10 days, that's, that's significant, but it's not something you can't overcome. A lot of people could maybe lose one days of wages and say, okay, I'm able to go along with life as normal. It's very likely that this woman is not an extremely impoverished woman. If she's got the ability to hold 10 days wages at once, it is a coin that she could do without, but she doesn't. She doesn't. She begins to sweep. The Bible says that she lights a candle because even in the middle of the day, the way that the houses would have been designed in the first century, it would have been too dark for her to be able to find this one coin. And so she lights this candle, and the Bible says that she sweeps, and that she sweeps, and that she sweeps, and that she sweeps, and that she begins to rearrange her house. She begins to move furniture, sweeping and looking and searching for this coin. She begins to switch things around, to turn her house upside down, to find one coin. It causes me to ask you, what are you willing to rearrange to find people? What in your life will you shift and change and look at different in order to find those who are lost? Why does... This woman, look at this coin, this one lost coin so different than the way that we look at the one lost person. I think that it has to do with value. I think it has to do with value. You see, this woman knows that although this coin is displaced, that it still has Caesar's image on it. You see, the coins would have, this would have been a Roman province, and so it would have been engraven with Caesar's image, which would have brought in value all throughout his kingdom. So although this 
coin is lost, although this coin is displaced, although this coin cannot be found, it does not lose its value. And I believe that God brought me here this morning to tell some of you that it doesn't matter how dirty you feel. It doesn't matter what dust you are in. It doesn't matter how lost you seem, that God's value has not been removed from you. That he looks at you and that he sees value because he made you in his image. You were made in his image. And I know you might feel dirty. I know you might feel like you found yourself in the cracks and the crevices of life. And there's so much dust on you, so much dirt and grum. And you just feel disgusting because of the places that you've been and the decisions that you've made and the people that you've hurt and the lies that you've told. But God looks at you and he goes, your value has not been erased. You may be lost, but as soon as you're found, that value, it's already there. All that it has to do is wind up back in the hands of the owner. And so this woman, she begins to look. She begins to search. She begins to try to find this coin. And I love that when she does, she throws a party when she finds it. Could you imagine getting an invitation to this party? Could you imagine getting this invite in the mail? To whom it may concern. I found my coin. <laughs> Party will commence, RSVPs and regrets. Like this is ridiculous. I would be like, um, Mary's lost her mind. Like she's throwing a party over the lost coin in her coin collection. I'm telling you, we're search and we're party kind of people. We're look for them and then we're lose our minds. Celebrate every sinner that's come back home, every step that people take. We are going to be a place that constantly praises God, that always shares stories, that always celebrates. We're never going to get tired of clapping our hands. We're never going to get tired of seeing baptism water stirred. We're never going to get tired of sharing stories. Because we are search and we are party kind of people. If you get frustrated, like at the end of every single one of my sermons, which will happen in probably two hours from now, that... um that I take five minutes and I do an altar call. I give people an opportunity to follow Jesus for the first time. If you're like, gosh, Joey, why are you doing that? You just seem to be wasting time. Like, I don't know if it's even happening. I will always do that. Do you know why? Because I want for you to rest assured and be certain that if you bring your lost and searching friend to church on a Sunday, that this may be the day that everything changes about them for all of eternity. I want for you to know that they could cross from death to life in this place. So we're always going to be a church that is for the sinner and the saint, that is for the lost and the found, that is for the forgotten and for the follower, that is for the doubter and the discipler. I'm going to try to equip you and pour into you and make sure that you're growing, but it is your job to bring those searching and lost and broken, hurting people so that they can find their home. This woman parties. And I want us to be a church that parties. Then the most famous story, the one that we feel the most, the prodigal son. I'm not going to read the story for the sake of time, but you can find it in Luke 15, 11 through 32. A father had two sons. One asked for his inheritance. He spent it all on lavish living. He winds up living among the pigs, and he decides to come back home to be a servant in his father's house. You know, we title this story The Prodigal Son, but it could just as easily be titled The Running Father. The thing that I love about this story is, it's almost as if the father had been waiting on his porch for his son to come back home. 
And as soon as the father sees any movement towards him, he gets up and he runs. Now, this is outlandish in Jewish culture. Respectable Jewish men do not run. This man would have been exuberantly wealthy. Wealth that was just obnoxious, beyond compare. The fact that he could sell things and generate enough cash where with